0: Section 22 of Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Clevenger. Personal Memoirs of U.S. Grant by Ulysses S. Grant Chapter 22 investment of fort donelson the naval operations attack of the enemy assaulting the works surrender of the fort i informed the department commander of our success at fort henry and that on the eighth i would take fort donelson but the rain continued to fall so heavily that the roads became impassable for artillery and wagon trains. Then, too, it would not have been prudent to proceed without the gunboats. At least, it would have been leaving behind a valuable part of our available force. On the 7th, the day after the fall of Fort Henry, I took my staff and the cavalry, a part of one regiment, and made a reconnaissance to within about a mile of the outer line of works at Donelson. I had known General Pillow in Mexico, and judged that with any force, no matter how small, I could march up to within gunshot of any entrenchments he was given to hold. I said this to the officers of my staff at the time. I knew that Floyd was in command, but he was no soldier and I judged that he would yield to Pillow's pretensions. I met, as I expected, no opposition in making the reconnaissance, and, besides learning the topography of the country on the way and around Fort Donelson, found that there were two roads available for marching, one leading to the village of Dover, the other to Donelson. Fort Donelson is two miles north or down the river from Dover. The fort, as it stood in 1861, embraced about 100 acres of land. On the east it fronted the Cumberland. To the north it faced Hickman's Creek, a small stream which at that time was deep and wide because of the backwater from the river. On the south was another small stream, or rather a ravine, opening into the Cumberland. This also was filled with backwater from the river. The fort stood on high ground, some of it as much as a hundred feet above the Cumberland. Strong protection to the heavy guns and the water batteries had been obtained by cutting away places for them in the bluff. To the west there was a line of rifle pits, some two miles back from the river at the furthest point. This line ran generally along the crest of high ground, but in one place crossed a ravine which opens into the river between the village and the fort. The ground inside and outside of this entrenched line was very broken and generally wooded. The trees outside of the rifle pits had been cut down for a considerable way out, and had been felled so that their tops lay outwards from the entrenchments. The limbs had been trimmed and pointed, and thus formed an obatus in front of the greater part of the line. Outside of this entrenched line, and extending about half the entire length of it, is a ravine running north and south, and opening into Hickman Creek at a point north of the fort. The entire side of this ravine, next to the works, was one long abatis. General Halleck commenced his efforts in all quarters to get reinforcements to forward to me immediately on my departure from Cairo. General Hunter sent men freely from Kansas, and a large division under General Nelson from Buell's army was also dispatched. Orders went out from the War Department to consolidate fragments of companies that were being recruited in the western states so as to make full companies and to consolidate companies into regiments. General Halleck did not approve or disapprove of my going to Fort Donelson. He said nothing, whatever, to me on the subject. He informed Buell on the 7th that I would march against Fort Donelson the next day but on the 10th he directed me to fortify Fort Henry strongly, particularly to the land side, saying that he forwarded me entrenching tools for that purpose. I received this dispatch in front of Fort Donaldson. I was very impatient to get to Fort Donaldson because I knew the importance of the place to the enemy and supposed he would reinforce it rapidly. I felt that 15,000 men on the 8th would be more effective than 50,000 a month later. I asked Flag Officer Foote, therefore, to order his gunboats still about Cairo to proceed up the Cumberland River and not to wait for those gone to Eastport and Florence, but the others got back in time and we started on the 12th. I had moved McClernand out a few miles the night before, so as to leave the road as free as possible. Just as we were about to start, the first reinforcement reached me on transports. It was a brigade composed of six full regiments commanded by Colonel Thayer of Nebraska. As the gunboats were going around to Donaldson by the Tennessee, Ohio, and Cumberland Rivers, I directed Thayer to turn about and go under their convoy i started from fort henry with fifteen thousand men including eight batteries and part of a regiment of cavalry and meeting with no obstruction to detain us the advance arrived in front of the enemy by noon that afternoon and the next day were spent in taking up ground to make the investment as complete as possible General Smith had been directed to leave a portion of his division behind to guard Forts Henry and Hyman. He left General Lew Wallace with 2,500 men. With the remainder of his division, he occupied our left, extending to Hickman Creek. McClernand was on the right and covered the roads running south and southwest from Dover. His right extended to the backwater up the ravine, opening into the Cumberland south of the village. The troops were not entrenched, but the nature of the ground was such that they were just as well protected from the fire of the enemy as if rifle pits had been thrown up. Our line was generally along the crest of ridges. The artillery was protected by being sunk in the ground. The men who were not serving the guns were perfectly covered from fire on taking position a little back from the crest. The greatest suffering was from want of shelter. It was midwinter, and during the siege we had rain and snow, thawing and freezing alternately. It would not do to allow campfires except far down the hill out of sight of the enemy, and it would not do to allow many of the troops to remain there at the same time in the march over from fort henry numbers of the men had thrown away their blankets and overcoats there was therefore much discomfort and absolute suffering during the twelfth and thirteenth and until the arrival of wallace and thayer on the fourteenth the national forces composed of but fifteen thousand men without entrenchments confronted an entrenched army of 21,000 without conflict further than what was brought on by ourselves. Only one gunboat had arrived. There was a little skirmishing each day brought on by the movement of our troops in securing commanding positions, but there was no actual fighting during this time except once, on the 13th, in front of McClernand's command. That general had undertaken to capture a battery of the enemy which was annoying his men. Without orders or authority, he sent three regiments to make the assault. The battery was in the main line of the enemy, which was defended by his whole army present. Of course the assault was a failure, and of course the loss on our side was great for the number of men engaged in this assault colonel william morrison fell badly wounded up to this time the surgeons with the army had no difficulty in finding room in the houses near our line for all the sick and wounded but now hospitals were overcrowded owing however to the energy and skill of the surgeons the suffering was not so great as it might have been the hospital arrangements at fort donelson were as complete as it was possible to make them considering the inclemency of the weather and the lack of tents in a sparsely settled country where the houses were generally of but one or two rooms on the return of captain walk to fort henry on the tenth i had requested him to take the vessels that had accompanied him on his expedition up the tennessee and get possession of the cumberland as far up towards Donelson as possible he started without delay taking however only his own gunboat the carondelet towed by the steamer alps captain walk arrived a few miles below Donelson on the twelfth a little after noon about the time the advance of troops reached a point within gunshot of the fort on the land side He engaged the water batteries at long range. On the 13th, I informed him of my arrival the day before, and of the establishment of most of our batteries, requesting him at the same time to attack again that day, so that I might take advantage of any diversion. The attack was made, and many shots fell within the fort, creating some consternation, as we now know. The investment on the land side was made as complete as the number of troops engaged would admit of. During the night of the thirteenth, Flag Officer Foote arrived with the ironclads St. Louis, Louisville, and Pittsburgh, and the wooden gunboats Tyler and Conestoga, convoying Thayer's brigade. On the morning of the fourteenth, Thayer was landed. Wallace, whom I had ordered over from Fort Henry, also arrived about the same time. Up to this time, he had been commanding a brigade belonging to the division of General C.F. Smith. These troops were now restored to the division they belonged to, and General Lew Wallace was assigned to the command of a division composed of the brigade of Colonel Thayer and other reinforcements that arrived the same day. This new division was assigned to the center, giving the two flanking divisions an opportunity to close up and form a stronger line. The plan was for the troops to hold the enemy within his lines, while the gunboats should attack the water batteries at close quarters and silence his guns if possible. Some of the gunboats were to run the batteries, get above the fort and above the village of Dover i had ordered a reconnaissance made with the view of getting troops to the river above dover in case they should be needed there that position attained by the gunboats it would have been but a question of time and a very short time too when the garrison would have been compelled to surrender by 3 in the afternoon of the 14th flag officer foot was ready and advanced upon the water batteries with his entire fleet. After coming in range of the batteries of the enemy the advance was slow, but a constant fire was delivered from every gun that could be brought to bear upon the fort. I occupied a position on shore from which I could see the advancing navy. The leading boat got within a very short distance of the water battery, not further off, I think, than two hundred yards, and i soon saw one and then another of them dropping down the river visibly disabled then the whole fleet followed and the engagement closed for the day the gunboat which flag officer Foot was on besides having been hit about sixty times several of the shots passing through near the water line had a shot enter the pilot house which killed the pilot carried away the wheel and wounded the flag-officer himself the tiller ropes of another vessel were carried away and she too dropped helplessly back two others had their pilot-houses so injured that they scarcely formed a protection to the men at the wheel the enemy had evidently been much demoralized by the assault but they were jubilant when they saw the disabled vessels dropping down the river entirely out of the control of the men on board. Of course, I only witnessed the falling back of our gunboats and felt sad enough at the time over the repulse. Subsequent reports, now published, show that the enemy telegraphed a great victory to Richmond. The sun went down on the night of the 14th of February, 1862, leaving the army confronting Fort Donelson anything but comforted over the prospects. The weather had turned intensely cold. The men were without tents, and could not keep up fires where most of them had to stay, and, as previously stated, many had thrown away their overcoats and blankets. Two of the strongest of our gunboats had been disabled, presumably beyond the possibility of rendering any present assistance. I retired this night, not knowing but that I would have to entrench my position and bring up tents for the men or build huts under the cover of the hills. On the morning of the 15th, before it was yet broad day, a messenger from Flag Officer Foote handed me a note expressing a desire to see me on the flagship and saying that he had been injured the day before so much that he could not come himself to me i at once made my preparations for starting i directed my adjutant-general to notify each of the division commanders of my absence and instruct them to do nothing to bring on an engagement until they received further orders but to hold their positions from the heavy rains that had fallen for days and weeks preceding and from the constant use of the roads between the troops and the landing four to seven miles below, these roads had become cut up so as to be hardly passable. The intense cold of the night of the 14th and 15th had frozen the ground solid. This made travel on horseback even slower than through the mud, but I went as fast as the roads would allow. When I reached the fleet, I found the flagship was anchored out in the stream, A small boat, however, awaited my arrival and I was soon on board with the flag-officer. He explained to me, in short, the condition in which he was left by the engagement of the evening before and suggested that I should intrench while he returned to Mound City with his disabled boats, expressing, at the time, the belief that he could have the necessary repairs made and be back in ten days. I saw the absolute necessity of his gunboats going into hospital and did not know but I should be forced the alternative of going through a siege. But the enemy relieved me from this necessity. When I left the National Line to visit Flag Officer Foote I had no idea that there would be any engagement on land unless I brought it on myself. The conditions for battle were much more favorable to us than they had been for the first two days of the investment. From the 12th to the 14th we had but 15,000 men of all arms and no gunboats. Now we had been reinforced by a fleet of six naval vessels, a large division of troops under General L. Wallace, and 2,500 men brought over from Fort Henry belonging to the division of C. F. Smith. The enemy, however, had taken the initiative. Just as I landed, I met Captain Hillier of my staff, white with fear, not for his personal safety, but for the safety of the national troops. He said the enemy had come out of his lines in full force and attacked and scattered McClernand's division, which was in full retreat. The roads, as I have said, were unfit for making fast time, but I got to my command as soon as possible. The attack had been made on the national right. I was some four or five miles north of our left. The line was about three miles long. In reaching the point where the disaster had occurred, I had to pass the divisions of Smith and Wallace. I saw no sign of excitement on the portion of the line held by Smith. Wallace was nearer the scene of conflict and had taken part in it he had at an opportune time sent thayer's brigade to the support of mcclernand and thereby contributed to hold the enemy within his lines i saw everything favorable for us along the line of our left and center when i came to the right appearances were different the enemy had come out in full force to cut his way out and make his escape mcclernand's division had to bear the brunt of the attack from this combined force his men had stood up gallantly until the ammunition in their cartridge-boxes gave out there was abundance of ammunition nearby lying on the ground in boxes but at that stage of the war it was not all of our commanders of regiments brigades or even divisions who had been educated up to the point of seeing that their men were constantly supplied with ammunition during an engagement. When the men found themselves without ammunition, they could not stand up against troops who seemed to have plenty of it. The division broke and a portion fled, but most of the men, as they were not pursued, only fell back out of range of the fire of the enemy. It must have been about this time that Thayer pushed his brigade in between the enemy and those of our troops that were without ammunition. At all events, the enemy fell back within his entrenchments and was there when I got on the field. I saw the men standing in knots, talking in the most excited manner. No officer seemed to be giving any directions. The soldiers had their muskets, but no ammunition while there were tons of it close at hand. I heard some of the men say that the enemy had come out with knapsacks and haversacks filled with rations. They seemed to think this indicated a determination on his part to stay out and fight just as long as the provisions held out. I turned to Colonel J.D. Webster of my staff, who was with me, and said, Some of our men are pretty badly demoralized, but the enemy must be more so, for he has attempted to force his way out, but has fallen back. The one who attacks first now will be victorious, and the enemy will have to be in a hurry if he gets ahead of me. I determined to make the assault at once on our left. It was clear to my mind, that the enemy had started to march out with his entire force, except a few pickets, and if our attack could be made on the left before the enemy could redistribute his forces along the line, we would find but little opposition except from the intervening avatars. I directed Colonel Webster to ride with me and call out to the men as we passed. Fill your cartridge boxes quick, and get into line. The enemy is trying to escape, and he must not be permitted to do so. This acted like a charm. The men only wanted someone to give them a command. We rode rapidly to Smith's quarters when I explained the situation to him and directed him to charge the enemy's works in his front with his whole division saying at the same time that he would find nothing but a very thin line to contend with the general was off in an incredibly short time going in advance himself to keep his men from firing while they were working their way through the abatis intervening between them and the enemy the outer line of rifle-pits was passed and the night of the fifteenth general smith with much of his division bivouacked within the lines of the enemy there was now no doubt but that the confederates must surrender or be captured the next day there seems from subsequent accounts to have been much consternation particularly among the officers of high rank in dover during the night of the fifteenth general floyd the commanding officer Who was a man of talent enough for any civil position was no soldier and, possibly, did not possess the elements of one. He was further unfitted for command for the reason that his conscience must have troubled him and made him afraid. As Secretary of War he had taken a solemn oath to maintain the Constitution of the United States and to uphold the same against all its enemies. He had betrayed that trust. As Secretary of War, he was reported through the northern press to have scattered the little army the country had, so that the most of it could be picked up in detail when secession occurred. About a year before leaving the cabinet, He had removed arms from northern to southern arsenals. He continued in the cabinet of President Buchanan until about the 1st of January, 1861, while he was working vigilantly for the establishment of a confederacy made out of United States territory. Well may he have been afraid to fall into the hands of national troops. He would, no doubt, have been tried for misappropriating public property if not for treason had he been captured general pillow next in command was conceded and prided himself much on his services in the mexican war he telegraphed to general johnston at nashville after our men were within the rebel rifle pits and almost on the eve of his making his escape that the southern troops had had great success all day. Johnson forwarded the dispatch to Richmond, while the authorities at the capital were reading it, Floyd and Pillow were fugitives. A council of war was held by the enemy at which all agreed that it would be impossible to hold out longer. General Buckner, who was third in rank in the garrison, but much the most capable soldier, seems to have regarded it a duty to hold the fort until the general commanding the department, a. s. Johnston, should get back to his headquarters at Nashville. Buckner's report shows, however, that he considered Donelson lost and that any attempt to hold the place longer would be at the sacrifice of the command. Being assured that Johnston was already in nashville buckner too agreed that surrender was the proper thing floyd turned over the command to pillow who declined it it then devolved upon buckner who accepted the responsibility of the position floyd and pillow took possession of all the river transports at dover and before morning both were on their way to Nashville with the brigade formerly commanded by Floyd and some other troops, in all about three thousand. Some marched up the east bank of the Cumberland, others went on the steamers. During the night, Forrest also, with his cavalry and some other troops, about a thousand in all, made their way out, passing between our right and the river they had to ford or swim over the backwater in the little creek just south of dover before daylight general smith brought to me the following letter from general buckner headquarters fort donelson february sixteenth eighteen sixty two sir in consideration of all the circumstances governing the present situation of affairs at this station I propose to the commanding officer of the Federal Forces the appointment of commissioners to agree upon terms of capitulation of the forces and fort under my command, and in that view suggest an armistice until 12 o'clock today. I am, sir, very respectfully, your obedient servant, S.B. Buckner, Brigadier General, C.S.A. To Brigadier General U.S. Grant, commanding U.S. forces near Fort Donelson, To this I responded as follows. Headquarters, Army in the Field, Camp near Donelson, February 16, 1862. General S.B. Buckner, Confederate Army. Sir, yours of this date, proposing armistice and appointment of commissioners to settle terms of capitulation is just received no terms except an unconditional and immediate surrender can be accepted i propose to move immediately upon your works i am sir very respectfully your obedient servant u s grant brigadier-general to this i received the following reply headquarters dover tennessee february sixteenth eighteen sixty two to brigadier-general u s grant u s army sir the distribution of the forces under my command incident to an unexpected change of commanders and the overwhelming force under your command compel me notwithstanding the brilliant success of the confederate arms yesterday to accept the ungenerous and unchivalrous terms which you propose i am sir your very obedient servant s b buckner brigadier-general c s a general buckner as soon as he had dispatched the first of the above letters sent word to his different commanders on the line of rifle-pits notifying them that he had made a proposition looking to the surrender of the garrison and directing them to notify national troops in their front so that all fighting might be prevented. White flags were stuck at intervals along the line of rifle pits, but none over the fort. As soon as the last letter from Buckner was received, I mounted my horse and rode to Dover. General Wallace, I found, had preceded me an hour or more. I presumed that, seeing white flags exposed in his front he rode up to see what they meant and not being fired upon or halted he kept on until he found himself at the headquarters of general buckner i had been at west point three years with buckner and afterwards served with him in the army so that we were quite well acquainted in the course of our conversation which was very friendly he said to me that if he had been in command, I would not have got up to Donaldson as easily as I did. I told him that if he had been in command, I should not have tried in the way I did. I had invested their lines with a smaller force than they had to defend them, and at the same time had sent a brigade full 5,000 strong around by water. I had relied very much upon their commander to allow me to come safely up to the outside of their works. I asked General Buckner about what force he had to surrender. He replied that he could not tell with any degree of accuracy that all the sick and weak had been sent to Nashville while we were about Fort Henry, that Floyd and Pillow had left during the night taking many men with them, and that Forrest, and probably others, had also escaped during the preceding night. The number of casualties he could not tell, but he said I would not find fewer than 12,000, nor more than 15,000. He asked permission to send parties outside of the lines to bury his dead, who had fallen on the 15th when they tried to get out. I gave directions that his permit to pass our limits should be recognized. I have no reason to believe that this privilege was abused, but it familiarized our guards so much with the sight of Confederates passing to and fro that I have no doubt many got beyond our pickets unobserved and went on. The most of the men who went in that way no doubt thought they had had war enough and left with the intention of remaining out of the army. Some came to me and asked permission to go saying that they were tired of the war and would not be caught in the ranks again, and I bade them go. The actual number of Confederates at Fort Donelson can never be given with entire accuracy. The largest number admitted by any writer on the southern side is by Colonel Preston Johnston. He gives the number at 17,000, but this must be an underestimate. The Commissary General of Prisoners reported having issued rations to 14,623 Fort Donelson prisoners at Cairo. As they passed that point, General Pillow reported the killed and wounded at 2,000, but he had less opportunity of knowing the actual numbers than the officers of McClernand's division, for most of the killed and wounded fell outside their works in front of that division and were buried or cared for by buckner after the surrender and when pillow was a fugitive it is known that floyd and pillow escaped during the night of the fifteenth taking with them not less than three thousand men forrest escaped with about one thousand and others were leaving singly and in squads all night it is probable that the confederate force at donelson on the fifteenth of february eighteen sixty two was twenty one thousand in round numbers on the day fort donelson fell i had twenty seven thousand men to confront the confederate lines and guard the road four or five miles to the left, over which all our supplies had to be drawn on wagons. During the 16th, after the surrender, additional reinforcements arrived. During the siege, General Sherman had been sent to Smithland at the mouth of the Cumberland River to forward reinforcements and supplies to me. At that time he was my senior in rank, and there was no authority of law to assign a junior to command a senior of the same grade. But every boat that came up with supplies or reinforcements brought a note of encouragement from Sherman, asking me to call upon him for any assistance he could render, and saying that if he could be of service at the front, I might send for him, and he would waive rank. End of Section 22 Recording by Jim Clevenger, Little Rock, Arkansas, Jim at J-O-C-C-L-E-V dot com.